Wedding invitations always stand out in the pile of mail. You check the return address to see who it's from and then open up the envelope and read the particulars. It's unheard of to receive an invitation from a stranger, right? Unless that is you're a celebrity, uh, they get them all the time. Maybe a few of you invited a president or a favorite movie star to your ceremony. That's something that happens more and more. I can't remember. I know we talked about sending an invitation to George W. Bush. I can't remember if we did. I think we did send one to his office. He didn't come, but what are you going to do? That's okay. Or maybe you took it to the extreme. Maybe you're like the Shiro's. They were a married couple who invited several hundred celebrities to their wedding way back in the dark ages of 1997. Uh, The the, the idea started with a casual discussion about their guest list, and it started going off the rails. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel wrote up the story. Mrs. Shiro said, we were talking, and I said, Martha Stewart would probably give a really good gift if she came, so we're putting her on the list. Her fiancé responded, well, if you're inviting Martha Stewart, I'm going to invite Bob Euchre. From there, the famous names started piling up, actors, athletes, newscasters, politicians, royalty, fashion designers... In the less internet-ready world of the 1990s, the Shiro's went to the library and found a book of celebrity addresses. I didn't know such a thing existed. (laughs) A lot of the invitations came back as undeliverable. Many were never answered, but 29 responses came in. Jack Nicholas sent his congratulations and regrets as he would be playing in the PGA Championship that weekend. Princess Diana, who only had a month to live, her representative wrote, I'm sure you understand it is not possible to accept this invitation, but nevertheless, the princess hopes you have a very happy day. The Clintons, the Gores, the Reagans all sent letters, as did Donald Trump, Colin Powell, Leslie Nielsen, the whole cast of Friends, and yes, even Martha Stewart. But Harold Ramis of Ghostbusters fame took the cake with his handwritten reply. They have pictures of it in the article. Mr. Harold Ramis and Entourage will gladly attend. And then it adds that they would need 13 pork chops, 22 beef tenderloins, and 12 chicken salads that evening. It says, we'll also need hotel rooms and limos to and from the airport and the wedding. We'll take care of our own air travel. In case we don't show up, try to have a good time without us. We wish you love and luck and all good things. Best, Harold Ramis. The Old Testament book of Zechariah is a a wonderful prophetic book. Uh, It contains some of the most interesting and unusual prophecies uh, and visions that the Lord gave in the Old Testament uh, and speaks a lot about uh, not just things that were going to happen to Israel, but things that are still going to happen future to our time. Uh, Visions of the end of the world, visions of Christ's second coming, fantastic book. But the book opens with a simple invitation. At the time it was delivered, the Babylonian exile was over, and God's people, the Jews, could once again return to their homeland, and many did, thousands of them did. And to this group of returned exiles, the Lord sent a personal invitation through Zechariah. He said this, come and be with me, not as a formality, not as a joke, not as a a souvenir that you keep to show people to laugh at, but on my terms, heart to heart, I want you to come and be with me and for us to be united heart to heart together for the rest of your lives. 
It was the same invitation that he had given their fathers and their fathers before them. And frankly, it's the same invitation that the Lord God gives to every single generation of human beings, including our own. He says, come and be with me so that I can be with you. That's what the Lord wants. That's what he wanted all the way back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. If you look at the book of Genesis, what did God want? He wanted man and woman to live in this garden together with him in a special relationship because human beings are God's special creation. He says, I just want to live with you, spend time with you, be united with you. When Jesus would come many thousands of years later, one of the names he was given is what? Emmanuel, God with us. That's his desire. It's his invitation. Be with me so that I can be with you. The invitation is always open. And so the question is, how will we respond? And how would Zechariah's audience respond? Let's take a look this morning. Verse 1 begins this way. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you'd like to know more about what was going on historically, and it would be good uh, for you to know that, you can kind of page through Ezra and Nehemiah and see some of the headings there. About 50,000 Jews had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and and they had some work projects that they were trying to accomplish. They would rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. Now, Zechariah was among this group, along with the prophet Haggai. You might recognize that name from his book. And they were helping in the work. They weren't just hanging out. They were there being a part of the job. But after laying the foundation of the temple, the Jews were forced to stop building by the hostile unbelievers around them. They encountered a lot of opposition and oppression uh, from the people there in the land. And it stayed that way for 18 years, God's people not doing the work. And then after 18 years, the Lord started speaking specifically through Haggai, but also Zechariah, about how he wanted them to, to begin again doing the thing that they had been called to do. It's always helpful for us to remind ourselves that the one true God really does make it a point to speak to us, to speak to the people of the world. He is a God who reveals and explains and directs. During the Enlightenment period, uh, one of the ideas that came out of that, that that became very prominent among the philosophers and the thinkers of the time was something called deism. And deism is the idea that, well, I'm a human being and I'm a thinker and I look around and it's obvious that the world around me was designed. It's obvious that this was created. Obviously, order doesn't come from disorder. And so clearly there's a God, but I don't think God speaks to us. I don't think God reveals himself to us. I don't think you can know God personally. And so there is a God, but I'm just going to live according to my own code of virtue, my own code of conduct, and uh, God will be happy with that. And so a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers were deists, and they organized their lives according to deism. God doesn't speak. God doesn't reveal. He just built things, and now I'm here, and I get to act as my own little God over my life. And so it's important that we remind ourselves that, no, 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 the true God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks, who reveals himself, who explains himself. Who, who, who describes reality to us and helps us really understand the truth, that he is the author of truth and delivers it to us. Now, we put a priority on the word of God here at Calvary and studying it systematically because we recognize 
that this is God speaking to us. This is the voice of God explaining things to us. And we, we recognize how necessary and beneficial and wonderful it is that through the scriptures we are made complete. That in the scriptures we have everything we need for life and for godliness. But we also want to just remember what a big deal it is that we serve a God who speaks. Who goes out of his way that he takes the initiative to speak down from heaven to us. You know, whenever there's a power outage at your home, whether it's planned or not, don't you just want to know what's going on and what to expect and when the lights might come back on? When the power goes off at my house, I start a stopwatch because I'm pretty sure that after about four hours, all of society is going to crumble, right? And it's going to be everyone for themselves, and we're on the clock now. But I'm always wondering what's going on, and so I'm running down the battery of my phone, refreshing the Southern California Edison page. Is there an update? Is there an update? Is there an update on it? And sometimes those updates are helpful, and sometimes they're not too up-to-date. But imagine that SCE or PG&E said, hey, we have a planned power outage, and uh, Bill here, he's going to stay at your house, and he has a live walkie-talkie, and he's going to be giving you updates every few minutes, or as often as you want them, to explain what's going on. And he'll tell you, oh yeah, okay, they've got the pole down, and they're putting the transformer on, and we think it's going to be about 30 more minutes. That would be really great, right? The Lord speaks to us as often, in a sense, as we want him to, as we go to his word, he says, hey, here's my word, my living word. It's alive and powerful. It's able to explain all sorts of things to you. You've got over a thousand pages of me revealing myself and giving you truth. You can go to it as often as you want, and I'll speak to you there. And then on top of that, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and the Holy Spirit helps you understand these spiritual truths in a dynamic and meaningful way. And so the Lord speaks to us all the time, not just about the sort of proverbial power outages of life, not just the problems we face, but so much more. We we open up the Bible and he says, okay, here's what's gone on in the past. Here's what's going on in the present. Here's what you can expect in the future. Here's what's going on in your heart. Here's why why things are the way that they are. Here's what you should um, expect from interacting with a world that is full of believers and unbelievers. Uh, Here are principles so that you can live in such a way that your life is full of my peace and my joy and my grace and my glory. Here's how to understand your life. Here's how to understand the world systems. Here's how to navigate relationships and be a citizen and be an employee and be a parent and be a spouse. Here's what's going on in heaven. Here's what I'm like. Here's how you can know me on a deep and life-changing level. All of that and more is contained in the word of God. And as demonstrated in this opening verse, it is always the Lord who takes the initiative. They didn't get together and send out one of those pulses like NASA does. We're like sending out these messages into space, seeing if any aliens answer, right? But it's not like the people said, hey, God, are you up there? The Lord said, hey, by the way, I'm calling down to you. I have something to say to you. He raised up Zechariah and Haggai so that he could give a message to these people. And he was the one reaching out, in this case, to a group of people who had in many ways given up. They had given up for 18 years and said, I guess all that stuff we were excited about doesn't really matter anymore. Verse 2 says, Here's the beginning of his message. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. Killer opening line, right? (laughs) God, God starts his message to them by explaining what linguists call his furious displeasure with their forefathers. Literally, the words can be uh, translated this way. He was angry with anger. 
He's really trying to get a point across here. We most often think and speak about the love of God, and that's good because it is by the love of God we are saved. His love is our only hope. But the fact that God is love doesn't mean that he has no other emotions, right? You have emojis. Most of you probably use emojis on your phone. Each emoji is one thing, right? And now they keep adding new emojis. It's like, ooh, it's new emoji day. Now the face is doing this, and it's like slightly different. But God has more than one emotion. The fact that he is love does not mean that he doesn't feel anger. He is abounding in faithful love, but he is also perfectly true and perfectly holy. And we as human beings are anything but holy. This morning we sang holy, holy, holy. We can't sing that about ourselves. We can only sing that about the God of the Bible. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible explains that God hates sin. He hates it. Not just he doesn't prefer it, not just that he skips it in the buffet line, not just that it kind of annoys him. He says, listen, I hate sin because sin defiles and ruins his creation. Sin brings death into his perfect world. Sin is always at its core a rebellion against the truth of God and against his rule over our lives. Sin is treason. That puts a barrier between us and God, this God who loves us and wants to bring us into his household and make us his children. Big sins, small sins, all of them cause us to turn away from God and turn toward death and start going toward death. But we belong to God. He bought us with the blood of his son. And so he hates sin. He hates it. In his eyes, we are the most valuable treasure of all. But when we sin, which we all do, it provokes his righteous anger. Now, the Lord has explained that he is slow to anger. He says, when Moses said, I want you to explain yourself to me, he said, okay, let me explain myself to you. I am God Almighty, and I am full, abounding in in, in love towards you. I am slow to anger, but I do get angry at sin. And the fact that God is slow to anger should not cause us to be casual about sin. In the same way that Paul says, should we sin that grace might abound? God forbid, he said. What had these ancestors in Zechariah done to make the Lord so angry? Well, you can find the sad saga throughout the Old Testament. There are passages that give a general rundown, like 2 Kings 17, Ezekiel 32, some passages in Jeremiah. But as you go through the story, you find, uh, pick a law, they broke it. Uh, pick a, a level of relationship with the Lord, they ruined it. They broke every single one of the Ten Commandments and much more besides. They worshiped idols uh, on every hill and under every green tree. They blasphemed God. They defiled the Lord's house. They committed uh, egregious acts of sexual immorality. They ignored the dietary laws. They refused to celebrate the Passover. They set up evil kings and corrupt priests. They wouldn't let the land rest. They burned their children alive on the altars of Molech. They filled the land with violence. They coveted. They lied. They oppressed the weak. In one short assessment, here's what God said in Jeremiah 7, 28. This is the nation that would not listen to the Lord their God and would not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It has disappeared from their mouths. Reading the books of the Old Testament is very clear why the Lord was angry. And we read this list of things and we think, wow, man, that was way over the line. 
we get angry, right, when you hear news stories about the career criminal who keeps committing crime after crime after crime, but they keep turning him out, 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 until eventually he does something truly heinous. He murders somebody or goes on some kind of spree. And we look at that and we say, that's wrong. Somebody has to put a stop to that. How many times did that guy have to get locked up before they said, let's throw away the key? And so we understand the idea that, that at some point we say that person needs to be stopped from the evil that they're doing. Listen, for hundreds of years, the Lord tried to call Israel back into relationship with himself, but they would not listen. And in truth, the fact is that for thousands of years, God has been calling mankind at large into relationship with himself, but in general, mankind won't listen. Instead, they and we go deeper into sin deeper into rebellion, further away from God, to the point where they even, the Israelites, were killing the messengers that God sent them. And so finally, judgment came. Now, in Zechariah's time, the descendants of those previous generations were back in Jerusalem, and God still loved them, and he had plans for them. He says, you know what? All of this has happened. Here's what's true historically about your family, your ancestors, but I want you to know That my invitation is still open. My arms are still open wide. The doors are open. Come and be with me. I still love you. I still have plans for you. I still have forgiveness and grace and mercy for you. Just like I would have had for your fathers if they would have listened. He still had a desire to revolutionize their lives and set them aside for his own special purposes. Verse 3, so tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says, return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. The word for return here is also the word the Bible uses for repentance. Repentance, that's a religious word that we don't use regular in regular life very much, right? The Bible uses it a whole lot. In fact, this word is the 12th most frequently used verb in the entire Old Testament of all the verbs. It's used over a thousand times. It simply means to turn toward the Lord. Uh, In other passages, we're given these shades of meaning on this word. Incline your heart to the Lord. Wash the evil from your heart. Break up your unplowed ground and seek the Lord. Zechariah probably delivered this message to an assembly of people not unlike us here today. You see, Zechariah was a priest in a family of priests. Later on, we find in the book of Nehemiah that he uh, was leading a family of priests. And so they probably got together in a big assembly and Zechariah said, hey, I have a message from the Lord. It's not from me. It's not my best idea. I have a message that God has given me, the word of the Lord to speak to you. And it's this return to me so that I can return to you. And it just means to turn to the Lord. Now, if I was there in that audience, I think I probably would have thought, now wait just one minute. What do you mean return to you? I packed up everything that I had and I moved hundreds of miles from my home that I, that's the only thing I've known for the last 70 years. I moved from Babylon, I did the thing. I took everything, I left my job, I left my home, I left everything that we had, and we moved back here. And then we got back here, and I helped build the wall, I helped pour the foundation of the temple. I did the thing. What do you mean, return to me? I already did it. Look where I'm standing. And yet, this is the message that the Lord gave him. He says, hey, listen, this group of people return to me. You see, God knows all things and knows every heart. He gathered these people together, and he said, 
There's still a barrier between us. In Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, we find that while their bodies were in Jerusalem, there were a lot of heart issues that needed to be worked out. Some of the individuals in this group were falling into the same patterns of negligence and disobedience that the ancestors before them had. Some had married outside of what the law allowed. Some were ignoring the regulations of God's law. Some were cozying up to ungodly, non-believing rulers. Some had totally had become totally materialistic in their lives, caring only about the, their own interests and not supporting the work of the ministry. Some were given in, giving into fear instead of trusting the Lord. They were in a good spot physically, right? In, in this sense, better to be in Jerusalem than to be in Babylon. But even though their feet were in the right spot, their hearts weren't in the right spirit. For the Lord, it wasn't just about location, it was about relation. He says, yeah, you're here, and I'm excited because in this place is where I can do all kinds of things through your life, but, but you've kept the doors of your heart closed to me. And so in tender kindness, the Lord said, you've returned to the land, but you haven't returned to me. Your hearts are somewhere else. It's not unlike Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus thousands of years later. We find in Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know your works, your labor and your endurance, but you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's the same invitation. Come and unite your heart with mine so that we can be together. God wanted their hearts much more than he wanted a stone temple or a walled city. He wants you. He wants your heart to be united with his. In Isaiah, God said this, you will be delivered by returning and resting. But we have to be willing to come. We have to be willing to listen and to turn toward the Lord. You see, repentance, turning to God, isn't something we just do one time at the beginning of our walk with God and then that's it. We've, we've covered our base. It's not like one inoculation you get and you never have to get again. We're invited to constantly turn our hearts toward the Lord. Joel chapter 2 says this, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all your heart. When we choose to turn our hearts toward God, in that moment, he is able to rush in and embrace us with his love and his power and give us all kinds of equipping and all kinds of, uh, of, of grace and all kinds of change in our lives and all kinds of provision and all kinds of purposes. He's able to do those things as we Make it a choice in our heart to turn towards him and embrace him and give ourselves to him. It's pictured most beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son. The father always loved the son. He was never, uh, you know, uh, he, he was never like, okay, forget the son. I'm done with him. Even though the son had done an offensive, terrible, wrong thing to his father, what do we see? The father looked day in and day out, looked down the road waiting for his son. He wanted to do so many good things for his son. He wanted to embrace his son. He wanted to bring his son back home. But when did all that happen? It happened when the son finally realized, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing. I need to turn back around and go back to my father. And in that moment, when the son realizes, I need to turn back to my father, immediately we see then the father sees him, runs to him, and wraps him up in love and forgiveness and brings him home, folds him right back into the family. Walter Kaiser writes this, Is this preaching needed any less than today than in Zechariah's day or in the day of the New Testament apostles? No. People today are not more heavenly inclined. Is this preaching needed by Christians as well? Yes. It is always time to repent of our sins if we wish to experience the power of the gospel and the joy of walking with our Lord. Verse 4 continues, 
Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So there's nothing new about this message. The gospel is always the same. God's invitation is always the same. But the choice of whether we're going to respond to what God has invited us to do, that is always a present new thing for us, day in and day out. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Well, how do I know if I've heard God's voice? Do I hear him audibly? No, and if you think you're hearing God audibly, please talk to us afterward. We just want to talk to you. But the word of God, the Holy Scripture has proven itself to be the word of God. And when we open up the pages of Scripture, that is the word of God. That is the voice of God speaking to us so that we might know the truth and that the truth might set us free. And so the Bible says, when you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your hearts. We're invited to listen to the living word of God that has been delivered to us that we might know the mind of God and his desire for our lives. The Lord says that their ancestors did not listen or pay attention. They were focused on, distracted by, consumed with other things, things that didn't ultimately matter. It's so easy to be distracted in the world, right? It's so easy for us to be consumed with things that don't matter. They soak up our attention. They soak up our affections. They leave little time for what is eternal or heavenly. God says, listen, I know you got a lot going on in your life, Don't be like these ancestors. Don't be like these examples that went the wrong way and found themselves in ruin. He pointed to spiritual history, spiritual examples that the people could think through, study, and observe so that they might learn from it. And the New Testament says, hey, one of the reasons the Bible is given to you is that all of these things are recorded and delivered for you as an example so that you can observe them, study them, and understand how to go God's way, how to embrace the Lord and not make the mistake that these earlier people did. Henry Ford once said this, what do I care about Napoleon? What do we care about what they did 500 or 1,000 years ago? I don't know whether Napoleon did or did not try to get across, and I, didn't care, and I don't care. It means nothing to me. History is more or less bunk. We want to live in the present, and the only history that matters is the history we make today. Okay. Uh, then a few years later, he founded a historical museum celebrating his own work. That's fine. So his history matters. Nobody else's does, right? But doesn't that reveal the human heart? Only me, only now, only what I care about. God invites us to think outside ourselves and outside of our present circumstances. He explains the human heart. He reveals the future. He points to the past. He gives us examples, all so that we can choose to turn our hearts and our lives toward him so that we can live together in harmony, When we talk about repentance, returning to the Lord, we most often, maybe it's just me, I most often think about those things God commands us not to do. The bad things, right? The evil things. Behaviors and actions and attitudes. And yes, the Lord does highlight here your evil ways and evil deeds, right? Those things that separated them from God. But repentance... I think we, it would help me to calibrate my thinking and realize that repentance is, is less about turning from and more about turning to. It's more about me turning to a person, turning to God, that he is the focus of my thinking, that he is the focus of my attention, that he is the focus of my heart, not just, well, I need to turn away from bad things or bad attitudes or bad behaviors. The Lord says, listen, what I want 
is for you to turn to me. And then I will take your heart and I will repair it and I will wash it and I will calibrate it and I will transform it and I will align your desires to be with my desires. It's him who accomplishes the the transformation. You look at the story of these post-exile Jews. God accomplished the work. God accomplished the impossible for them. He's the one that brought them back to the land of promise. He's the one that acted providentially so that they wouldn't have to pay for the materials to rebuild the city or the wall or the temple. He turned the hearts of Darius and Xerxes, these pagan kings, to be favorable towards God's people. God's the one that frustrated the plans of their enemies and oppressors. He's the one that raised up servants and prophets and priests and leaders and paved the way so that these people could be redeemed and reestablished in this land he wanted to give them. That's what God does again and again and again for the, throughout every generation in the human race. Because our God is a God of generous, abounding, faithful love. He says, I want to do this for you. What you need to do is turn to me. Come to me. Give your heart to me so that I can do incredible things for you and in you and through you. Verse 5. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Hold there for a moment. For hundreds of years of Jewish history, God's people wasted God's mercy. They dismissed his grace. They mocked the prophets. But in the end, history tells us God's word overtook them. Everything that God said was going to happen did happen. And those people who refused to embrace the Lord and refused to bow their knees to him were consumed and destroyed. His word always comes to pass. You know, God's word is still alive. It's still powerful. It's still in effect. All his promises are still true and are still going to happen. And like we talk about so often here, he has warned that another judgment is coming. Not just to the localized land of of Israel. No, a judgment that is coming that is going to overtake the entire world. Many may mock. Many may refuse to accept God's mercy. In the end, his word will overtake them. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord. And when Christ returns by his word, the nations will be judged and destroyed. Do the prophets live forever? It's a rhetorical question that God gives them. It would challenge the listeners then and us today with the fact that life is short and God's invitation is now for you. It's today. Our choice to turn toward God must be made now. We must not put it off or take it lightly, but decide to follow Jesus. So what would Zechariah's audience do? The rest of verse six. So the people repented and said, as the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. The people did not protest. They didn't complain. They didn't challenge what God said. They just agreed and took responsibility and accepted his invitation. It was as simple as that. They listened to the word of the Lord, hard though it was, and the result was a wonderful spiritual success story, a rare one in the Old Testament, where God sent a messenger and the people said, yeah, you're right. Let's turn back to the Lord. That didn't happen very much in the Old Testament. More often, they just end up killing those guys. And in fact, in the end, not right now, but later in his life, Zechariah would be killed for his testimony for the Lord. But they here listened to what God said. 
Now, all of their problems weren't instantly, magically gone the moment they said, you're right, God, I want to follow after you. They still had a lot of stuff to work through. And turning to God required a, a lot of practical uh, uh, changes in their lives. And you can read about them in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, things that had to change in their lives because they said, I, I've decided to follow Jesus. Okay, that means you're going to have to walk away from certain things that are going on in your life. But it was worth it. The power was back on. Relationship was restored. Notice how simple the Lord's invitation was. Come to me. Turn around. Embrace me. My arms are open wide. The invitation is still open. Newsweek published an article last week about some wedding guests who were just so offended and incensed because they received a wedding invitation from friends and in the invitation, it demanded that they each pay $112 for every plate of food at the reception on top of bringing money for the honeymoon. To which I say, get some new friends, man. Like, that, you know, that, that's on you. But it was interesting. I was thinking about that. And the truth is, when the Lord invites us to be with him, his invitation is simple, but it does have requirements. There is a cost to pay. He has boundaries and guidelines and commands that we must follow if we want to be in relationship with him. We come on his terms, not ours. But the Bible explains very clearly and very wonderfully that everything God requires of us, he enables us to do and provides for us to do. He pays the price for salvation. He pays the debt that we owe. He washes the stains off our hearts. He provides the perfect robe of righteousness by which we can be admitted into the kingdom. What he asks of us is that we come. And he says, let me do what I want to do in your life. Come and be with me so that I can be with you. To turn to him. It's not something we do just once. It's something we keep doing as we walk with him day by day. Gordon Smith writes this, True conversion leads us to be always conscious of sin and our need to turn from it. Repentance remains a continuing and vital element of the spiritual life, for without its abiding presence, there is no transformation. And God's relationship with you is all about transformation from this day forward. If you're wondering how this works practically, okay, turn to God. What is, what is that? I just feel it or what, what does that mean? Well, God's word gives us a few helpful instructions and examples. Repentance is a matter of the heart. That's the whole point this morning. But we do see it demonstrated practically first through confession to God for our sin. Examples are found in Leviticus 26 and through the personal examples of Nehemiah and Daniel. Those men, they, they were considering the Lord and what the Lord wanted to do. And they were considering themselves and they realized, man, I want to just be in communion with God. That's what he wants for me too. And they went to the Lord and they went to prayer and, uh, and agreed with God what he said. They admitted their sin and the sin of their nation. And then they spent time reading the word of God and worshiping him. And then finally inviting the Lord to be present and to do all he wanted to do in their midst. The Apostle Paul puts it much more succinctly and personally in Philippians 2 in that famous phrase where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Any wedding invitation you receive will bear these letters, RSVP, respond please, right? God gives his invitation always with a please. He, he's pleading with the people here just like he had with their ancestors and their ancestors before them and pleading with all of the generations throughout human history and pleads with you and I, respond please. 
I want to be united with you. Will you be united with me? He pleads with us to respond, to choose to return to him that we might experience the fullness of God's blessing in our lives. We have the invitation. Now the Lord waits for our hearts to respond. Let's pray.